At Cambridge University Press and Assessment International Education, we deliver qualifications in more than 10,000 schools and in over 160 countries worldwide. Currently, we have opportunities for teachers to join us as assessment specialists in a wide variety of subjects at Cambridge IGCSE, O-Level and AS and A-Level. Assessment specialists cover a number of roles, including creating exam content, marking answers and moderating candidates' work. Our international reputation for excellence, fairness and reliability rests on the shoulders of assessment specialists. Becoming an assessment specialist is a great professional development opportunity. You will gain a powerful insight into the teaching and assessment of Cambridge qualifications, which you can use to inform your own teaching practice. Understanding exactly how an examination works and what the assessment process is will improve your own teaching in the classroom. With many different opportunities available, there is so much that we can offer. Visit www.cambridgeinternational.org forward slash examiners for more information. Hello there. Thanks for joining me today for another job pod. Today, my guest is Ryan Ean, who's the current postgraduate intern at the Geographical Association. Uh, welcome to job pod, Ryan. Thank you, John, and thanks for the I, I don't think that many people will realise that the GA has an internship. It's something, actually, it's something that I set up when I was programme manager, and it's been running ever since, and it's been really useful for, for the GA. We get a top quality intern from Sheffield University, and hopefully the intern gets a quality experience that's different from what they're doing at university. So before we talk about what you're doing, and you're on a master's programme at the moment, aren't you? and then, then a PhD starting next year, just yeah. tell me why. Why did you apply to to the GA for the internship? And what is it that you've been involved with while you've been there? Yeah, I guess it's quite interesting. I think when you're at high school and doing A-level geography, you see the GA logo quite a lot. But it wasn't until we had the conference actually earlier this year and it appeared all over Twitter, I kind of knew more about the GA and what they did. So when the internship got advertised to us, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to sort of round off my master's and spending a, bit, a year a bit more involved in geography um, and to gain some sort of experience in sort of professional environment, I guess. And the internship has actually been really interesting to uh, like reflect back on uh, my geography education myself. And whilst I'm here, I've been doing loads of different things from sort of general office admin, looking at the National Field Work Week as well, seeing the output of that, and also doing a little bit of research on resources and the links between maths and geography. So yeah, I've been very busy. It's interesting you said that, because I, I wouldn't be too sure that many students will see the Geographical Association logo. So how, where did you see that when you were at school? I guess it's, I recognised it when I saw it earlier this year. So I guess it must be on resources or, or textbooks or drip thread through, I guess. Did your teachers ever talk about it? Not from what I remember, no. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's the, it's the professional association for teachers and it provides an awful lot of resources. And we do produce a number of activities directly for students. So there's Worldwide Week and then there's the competition for A-level students to become part of Team UK at the, the International Geography Olympiad. There are ooh, 50, 50 plus countries that take part in that. Did you ever come across that when you were at school? No, I don't think I did. 
maybe they weren't advertised to us i don't know but <laughs> i think there's a message there for some teachers actually because you're an enthusiast and you've seen a little bit about the geographical association in your yeah. which which got you to to apply for this but but you missed out on that one so perhaps more marketing by us and, and perhaps some more comments from, from teachers to students about, hey, just a minute, there's some wonderful stuff here that the GA could do for you. Are you involved with anything to do? You've done Fieldwork Week, obviously, while you've been here. Have you done anything that's involved students? Uh, no, not really. Many doing sort of background research, I guess. I guess I've come at a, sort of a weird time of the year where things are probably wrapping up a bit. Yeah, um, touch. What's your, what's your research been? Uh, so maybe looking at resources out there for maths and geographers, I think there's quite a big link there and a lot of people are interested in sort of improving numeracy skills for geographers. So I'm just doing some sort of death research, seeing what's out there, what, what the GA could possibly do. Because you're a bit of a mathematician as well, aren't you really? A, a, a closet mathematician as well, which, is, which isn't always the case with geographers. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, my undergrad in, in meteorology definitely sort of vied with me with quite a good background in mathematics anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's a scary thing. I might ask you a little bit more about that later on. But So you're at Sheffield University, you're completing your master's, and it's an MSc. It's in, I hope I get this right, it's polar and alpine change. Yeah. And you've your first degree was at the University of Reading. But actually, I've called you a geographer. You didn't do a geography degree, did you? You have a first-class honours in meteorology and climatology. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I have done a little bit of digging about you because I, re- I remember this when it first came out, wondering which student it was that got involved in this. You independently built, launched, and retrieved a high-altitude weather balloon, didn't you? I've, I've seen the Armet Sox uh, article. That sounds amazing. So talk me through how you did that when you were at school. Yeah, it was quite a, a big project, really. I don't really know what I was getting myself in for. But it's part of an EPQ, so an extended project qualification at a level and you need to do an artifact or essay and i thought it'd just be a great experience to do the artifact get experience in sort of leading my own project and researching outside the curriculum i guess and the the project itself was a lot of work it had a lot of sort of computing and radio electronics in there had to get permission from civil aviation authority also had to gather funding as well so i sent out loads of emails to different companies and organizations and to try and sort of get some help with the project. Uh, and actually, one of the people that helped me quite a bit was Dr. Sylvia Knight at the uh, Royal Meteorological Society. And having sort of talked to her about the project, um, she's the one who got me involved with writing an article for the journal later on. So, yeah, it was a really useful and exciting project. She's also done a podcast, actually, an earlier one. Um, where yeah, I did see. Technology. There, there's, a bit of a, there's a bit of a lack, I think. So when you went through doing your A-level, you can't have done very much meteorology, climatology, I don't think. Yeah, so there's no content about, well, not the modules we did, I guess, about meteorology or even glaciology, actually. But I guess it depends on what, what modules you pick. There isn't anything directly, I don't think, now where... When I, when I was teaching A-level, I did what was what's become AQA. And we had a module where we looked at, we looked at synoptic charts. We looked at adiabatic dry adiabatic saturated adiabatic lapse rates we did the maths yeah and i'm not sure it's there anymore so even if you picked and choose so your teacher didn't choose any of those modules anyway but yeah but yeah i'm not entirely sure that there's 
there's much there that would have inspired me to think, whoa, I'm going to do a high altitude weather balloon. Yeah, yeah. So what was the teacher's involvement? Yeah, so the teachers at um, my high school were really supportive, actually, considering I was just a, sort of a random student who wanted to do such a big project. And it required quite a lot of the school's resources in terms of uh, there's a lot of people coming in to help me with the balloons, a lot of risk assessments needed to be done. And they really helped me just uh, sort of get out there. And, and the project sort of expanded quite a bit afterwards as well. And with their support, I was able to go do talks to, to places. I went to um, Boscombe Down. So they were really helpful in sort of organising all of that and looking after me, I guess, <laughs> in the project. Did they support you in looking at uh, university to do meteorology? Because that's another interesting one. I did quite, quite a bit, I suppose, in A-level of meteorology. So much so that I would, I would get synoptic charts faxed in those days, because that's what we did. Yeah. We turned it into a, an acetate and then we'd look at what the weather was going to to develop during that day on the on the strength of the synoptic chart that we'd got but I don't think I even considered advising my students to do meteorology university I think I'd have always pushed geography so what, what was the thought process that got you I know you're a mathematician as well so perhaps that was part of it yeah I think it's a difficult one so at school, I was always very interested in physics. That was sort of my favourite subject, I guess. But then alongside that, I was really interested in geography as well. And I, I really enjoyed both human physical aspects of geography. So deciding what to do at uni was quite hard. And I was never that confident in maths. I didn't really like maths that much, but I liked using it in physics. So I think in sixth form, it was a gradual interest built up in meteorology, I guess. My physics teacher, I remember my physics teacher gave me a textbook on meteorology. We were talking about maybe doing a degree in geophysics. Sort of try and combine physics with geography, I guess, and, and the environment. And it wasn't until after the balloon that I had kind of decided that geology degree was what I'd go for. So if you hadn't done the balloon, would you have tended to go into physics rather than, than geography? Yeah, I think so. Maybe. Because that's interesting, given where you've gone to next. Yeah. Because... Yeah. That was sort of out and out, I presume out and out, meteorology and climatology. So when, if you hadn't gone on to your master's, and we'll talk about that in a minute, where would you have gone with the meteorology and climatology? Yeah, so my other physics teacher at school also worked for a bit with the British Antarctic Survey, and she worked as an atmospheric scientist there. So that was always the job I thought I would apply for straight after my degree. I just think it's a great opportunity and I've always been interested in polar regions as well so I think that's probably where I would have gone or tried right. yes. yeah. so you the geography was always underpinning it somewhere but it's yeah. more the the Arctic and uh, and the Antarctic both poles I, I presume so tell me so you've got you, you've got your first class honours and uh, and you've been inspired by uh, by one of your teachers so is that was it a fairly smooth process into the masters then and then and what have you been what are you doing with it yeah, so I think the Met degree, even though it sounds quite niche, it does build you up with a very good background in sort of maths, modelling, coding, and just generally sort of physics of the environment, I guess. So the transition to the masters is really quite relaxed because all of my skills are built, but very applicable to glaciology. Uh, so my masters currently, it's the research masters. So projects I've been doing is, is modelling how the Juno Icefield in Alaska is going to change in the future. So looking at the surface mass balance of that in the future. How do you do that remotely? Yeah, so glaciers are impacted quite heavily by climate, of course. So 
if you have climate model data for the sort of feature in the, the past, you can have an idea of how the ice will respond to changes in that climate. So it's a lot of running of models and, and coding and equations and physics, I guess, to, to see the impact on ice um, with sort of forcing on climate. Do you get to go? Have you been? Unfortunately uh, not. And Junior Ice actually has a really good research program, which has been running since 1944, I think, where they, they take students who have no experience in glaciology and they go ski touring for six weeks, collecting data, measuring the mass balance, which seems very cool. So maybe, maybe next year. But next year you'll be on to doing your PhD. Yes. Yeah. So you, you complete the masters this year, don't you? Yes. Yeah. In a few months. What does the PhD involve? It's kind of still taken to glaciology, I guess. And the project is with sort of funded by Sense. It's mainly Earth observation based. Uh, it's basically investigating the influence of mountain water runoff and near terminus subglacial hydrology on the dynamics of marine terminating glaciers in Greenland which is quite a long title there, <laughs> but it's basically looking at what effect of mountain water has on the marine terminating glaciers, which are draining the ice field or the ice sheet. Why did you pick Greenland? You've gone from Alaska and then now we're into Greenland. What was the, what was the process there? Quite interesting. Um, so I think until about 20 years ago, these ice sheets were considered so big and huge that they're almost impervious to climate, I guess. Uh, but obviously, that's not the case. And we're seeing that the mass balance is decreasing a lot and millions of tons of mount water in, in summer seasons come off the Greenland ice sheet. So they're going to have a massive effect on our Earth, really, on, on the sea levels, on a variety of things. And it's where a lot of research is happening right now. So I thought it'd be good to move to an area that's generating a lot of research. So you do get some experience there this time, don't you? You do get to go. Ah, so yeah, so the Greenland field trip, that's part of a master's still. Oh, Pretty right. Funny. Yeah, no field work planned for my PhD. But. Okay. Oh, well, you are at least going to get to go somewhere. And I was thinking, oh, well, that's a, a research-based master's. You're not going to go to, go anywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's no. not the point of, of these things. <laughs> I was reading about Greenland, just as an aside, really, but I, I don't know why I've followed this little track but i've been reading about uh, woolen barents and looking for the the northeast passage and nansen and i i read a little bit about nansen who with his five companions were the first to cross greenland in 1888 and it sounds absolutely desperate it took them a month to get onto the island as far as i understand to get yeah. onto greenland because the weather was so foul and then they had a desperate cold to to have to overcome to be able to get across so it it was a, an absolute epic presumably now the landscape is different yeah i guess it's interesting reading that i've been also been reading um about hms erebus book by michael palin so it's, it's interesting to hear what happened back then but uh, i guess the landscape has changed quite a lot you know arctic sea ice extent has decreased quite dramatically but yeah back in the day it must have been pretty hard to get across especially you know, the elevation on the ice, uh, ice sheet goes up to quite high. It's around 2,000 metres um, in the highest part. So, yeah. How much is there that's not, that, that is green now, that's not covered in ice? Because I get the impression from then that it was, it was all covered in ice and there were ice sheets and that was on, on the water. That was why it was difficult for them to, to even make a landing. Yeah, I wonder which direction they came from, I guess. As far as I know, the 
east side of, side of Greenland is where a lot of green terminating glaciers are. There's, there's very, not very much land there. But then on the west and the north, you, you do have quite a lot of land uh, and a lot of glacial landforms as well. So, yeah, I wonder how it's changed. What's your prediction for the future when, as the ice continues to melt? Are you very gloomy about the future? <laughs> I mean, it's not looking too good, to be honest. Um, it's quite a sad field to be going into, I guess. Because if I do stay into the research of glaciology in, in sort of 40 years, it's going to see a lot of changes happening and all of them will be negative. So I guess from a, a meteorologist's point of view, yes, I'm quite gloomy about it. Yeah, no, that, I think I feel the same. I, I've got photographs of when we've gone to the Mer de Glace in the 1980s and then photographs again when we've gone back again in the 2000s and you can't see the glacier there's a there's a, a sign that says where it was and we should have taken the same photograph over for the 30 40 year gap i wish i had done now but even in europe the glaciers are just almost non-existent in a lot of areas now yeah it's really sad there's a plaque in one of the first icelandic glaciers because of climate change that Gemma woodham um signposted to actually I actually have it written down here, uh, and I think it's quite poignant and about what's going to happen in the future. So Okkajul is, is the first Atlantic glacier to lose its state as a glacier, basically. Uh, and the plaque says, in the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening, what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. August 2019, 415 parts per million. And I think that's kind of a sad thing to have to say, really. It's going to show what's going to happen in our lifetimes, I'm afraid. I know. It, it is quite scary. It's of value for students, I think, to understand that your work in a distant place like Greenland isn't that distant. All the seas are connected. What's happening there is a, is a key indicator for what's going to affect us. Yes, definitely. And, and what we're doing here is also affecting that as well, I think, is the, the case as well. It's happening everywhere and it only get worse, I guess. While we're talking about students, I, I, I suppose I ought to ask you this, but because you're much closer to it than I am, it's hundreds of years since uh, since I taught A level. What, as you went through your A level, what do you wish the teachers had told you? What skills do you think you sh- you would like to have acquired that you didn't? Are there any? Yeah, so I think A levels actually generally pay you quite well, and universities. If you go to university, uh, the transition is is very gradual they know what you've been taught uh, they know what skills you have so they kind of build upon that uh, very very gradually I guess the main thing that A-levels could have done better is is sort of the soft skills stuff like my EQQ the independent learning that is really vital and I think in the A-level spec now there is um, an independent project that wasn't when I was at school and I think things like that getting students to think outside of what's on sort of the curriculum is really useful to, to get them thinking and also build these soft skills. How were you inspired? Were there any light bulby moments where you thought, yeah, this is, this is brilliant? Yeah, I guess as a student at A-level, it's really helpful to know about what's going on in the wider world, not just what we're taught in lessons, I guess, but the research happening out there. So I remember we went on a trip to CERN, a physics trip, and that was really interesting and, and got a lot of people sort of thinking about sort of the world outside and what you could be doing in the future and the research we're doing. And I guess experiences like that and doing the field work as well, having a chance to do field work, because it was really helpful to sort of get people thinking about what they could be doing. I was partly asking because one of my ex-students 
got in touch with me through Facebook. And it just so happened that year we were walking on the high level route into Zermatt. And he said to me, do you mind if I put you up? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm now managing a suite of luxury apartments in Zermatt. And I'd like to put you and the other two fellows that you're walking with up for a couple of days when you get down into Zermatt. He said, take it as a, a late thank you for the field trip to Aaron. He said, when I stood in Glen Rosa and looked up Gottfeld and Kiervor, I realised that this was the sort of place that I wanted to work in. And he did. The school was in a mining community. We bust children in from all over the place. But the fieldwork element was really important. And you've mentioned fieldwork and real world experiences going to CERN. Yeah, massively important. I think those sorts of key things that take the, the subject, whether it's physics or whether it's geography, out of the classroom and make it relevant, I think, are a real key to enthusing students. Yeah, definitely. Because until then, you don't really have, definitely, I didn't have any opportunities to sort of go out and do that kind of thing. So you don't really know uh, too much about the world around you, I guess. And being brought into landscapes like that um, is really inspiring and gets you thinking. What I thought I'd, I'd ask you about next, given that we've just been talking about fieldwork there, is, is Fieldwork Week. What, what did you do with Fieldwork Week with the GEA? What's been your role there? Yeah, so I joined the GA whilst the week was happening. So all the hard work been done by that point. But I was just kind of helping to quantify how many schools got involved, I guess, and how of a success it was. And loads of schools did, as far as Bangkok and Thailand, and quite nice to see how many schools are out and posting about it on Twitter. So there's a map, isn't there? I think that are you part of compiling it, or has Alan Parkinson been doing that? So it shows the the sort of spread of where people have. Uh, yeah, yeah. So Alan's map was really interesting to see. I also mapped out the locations of schools uh, rather than where they did the field work as well. And it was all across the UK. It was nice to see everyone get involved. Yes, it's been very successful. Has there been any valuation of it yet, or is it too early for that? It's a bit too early. Yeah. So it's only you know compiling what we know from Twitter really, because there wasn't really a way to measure it other than that. Um, but slowly getting numbers in. It does seem to be quite exciting. The, the comments back have been very positive, haven't they? Yeah, definitely. And there's also a link, I think, between fieldwork and the subject, geography and appreciating the outdoors. And, and, and I think that's partly what I was talking about with that student who, who for the first time, I think a completely different landscape going up to Aaron opened his eyes to a to a different world I think I think that's really important but there is a link quite often between geographers and doing sporty things in the outdoors and I found out that you're a bit of a trail runner aren't you? Yeah a little bit and, and a climber as well yeah it's interesting you say that so out of the 10 people on our course around eight of them are climbers or keen hikers I think there's definitely a link between appreciating the environment and then also wanting to study, study it I guess. Where do you do your trail running? Uh, only, only around the peaks. I was meant to sign up for an ultramarathon play district, actually, but I've, I've got injured. So um, I've only been doing sort of low-level, low-distance low stuff. What were you going to sign up for? What was the ultramarathon? It was part of the Keswick uh, Mountain Festival. Right. And how far? I think it was just over a marathon. I think it's 50 kilometres, something like that. But yeah, it would have required a lot of training for me. So kind of glad that maybe I was injured. I, I probably wouldn't have been prepared for it in time. But... <laughs> 
<laughs> I used to do quite a lot of mountain marathons. There was a, an event called the Low Alpine Mountain Marathon. It, it was a, in Scotland and Martin Stone, who ran it, always said that the mid-camp, he tried to make sure that the mid-camp was as far away from a road as he could possibly get. So quit. everything in and everything out. It sounds quite dramatic, but I, I suppose we only ran a marathon over the two days. It wasn't, that one wasn't so epic, but you have to do the, um, you have to do all the navigation yourself, carry everything, take all your food in, take all your, everything that you've, all the waste products, your packets and things back out again. There's no place for dumping rubbish. But we ended up in some really wild parts of Scotland. I think it's a great way to get out and experience, uh, to sort of see the landscape as well. And a mate of mine was running for a while with, um, with a, a small drone. Because we weren't really out to run. We were out to cover more of the scenery. But I said to him, look, if you, if you stick that little drone in your backpack, when we get to something like um, a recession on the rain, we can up the drone and you get a completely different picture of the landscape. So yeah. some fantastic views of, of features that are difficult to picture unless you see them at, at, a, at a different angle. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we were on uh, tidal slabs in Snowdonia back in December, climbing up ordinary route. And the person I was with on my course, also in glaciology, but she had an undergrad in geology. So I remember when we were climbing, I was pointing out all of these landforms, asking, you know, what's that? What's that? Uh, and she was saying, that's the hammer cream rain. And I think it's a great way to learn and you know, appreciate our landscape, I guess. Yeah, we, we took one up when we went to Anschelach last time. We took the same, um, the same drone. It's so, it seems to have faded a little bit because when I was at the GA people were contacting me as program manager and saying I want to set up a drone company what can you do for us and of course because we didn't have much money for that sort of project yeah yeah we didn't really get involved but it hasn't taken off the way I thought that it might have done I guess you've got to be careful in a lot of places. I think there's the requirement of licenses now, which is probably a good thing. And I know a lot, a lot of national parks have banned them because they kind of ruined their ambience, I guess. Of... I suppose. Although Martin's, my mates, was very quiet. And the quality of the photographing was amazing. But you're right. It's, um, the last thing you need is lots and lots of people with, um, with those things buzzing around while you're trying to get a bit of peace and quiet in a tranquil setting. But it, it does give you an amazing, different experience of the landscape. I was, as we went to Panchalach, there were, where there were several features, including some uh, periglacial terraces that you couldn't really get until you lifted up a little bit. And even better when we were coming down because the sun was lower and it was, high, it was sort of highlighting the, the shapes that we couldn't see. It was almost like a staircase. It was quite amazing. So you talked about your climbing, which interested me because... I started climbing when I first, I didn't do it at school. I started climbing when I was, um, when I began teaching because there were a couple of climbers there. How did you start? How did your climbing start? I've always wanted to get into it, but just never really had the money or, or the chance to until uni. And then I got involved quite heavily, I guess. I was president of my uni's mountaineering club in my second year as well. And it was just a great way to get into these remote places and, and see things that you, you never had before at school. I hadn't been to Snowdonia even living sort of two and a half hours away from it until going to uni. And I remember my first time there, I couldn't believe that there's landscapes like that in the UK. It definitely makes you curious about the environment and how it happened and 
appreciation for also what we're doing to it as well. That's actually that's important because we the GA does oh, well it did we had a link with the the FSC who was one of our strategic partners the Field Studies Council and that we've we run a, a competition through Worldwise and the winning schools regionally get the opportunity to do a free or they did a free field work weekend with the Field Studies Council. So we would take 10 teams of three, so 30 students, um, and we went from Field Studies Centre to Field Studies Centre. But that comment that you made there is really interesting. When we went to Blencathra and when we went to Mallon, we had students saying just the same as you said, I didn't realise that these sorts of landscapes existed in the UK. And that sense of, I don't think I'm exaggerating, that sense of awe and wonder. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Had a huge impact on them. Yeah. We quite often just set a a very simple, what makes this a special place inquiry? So they had to look at the geology and the geomorphology and the land use and the links to people living there and the links to tourism, the whole thing, the whole package, which gave them... a big area to inquire. Where did they take you when you were at school? If you'd never been to the Lake District, uh, to, to North Wales then? Yeah, we, so we didn't really do much for work at school. I remember we went to Swanage actually to do some coastal field work. But other than that, we hadn't really gotten out. And it was the same at university as well, because our field work got cancelled. We went to go to Alavaran for a week and that got cancelled because of COVID. So I think there's definitely sort of a lack of it recently anyway. Yeah, that's been a real blow I think has been the lack of field work the lack of opportunity and then it's very difficult to start it back up again if a school's strapped for cash then I could see a leadership team saying well you did really well without the field work what's the point of the field work yeah I guess it's hard to find the motivation there I guess it's hard to quantify the experiences that students will have in words isn't it I'm going to give you a rock hard question now what do you think from your perspective What's the point of fieldwork? Yeah, I think there's there's two parts there. Some could argue more important than others, but you have the sort of the skills, obviously, the data collection and measuring the environment. But I think the, the bigger value is just, you know, we spend all these times learning about these environments in our classroom, but actually getting to see it in your person is, I think, really important for finding motivation to study it and a, a personal connection, really. I spent all year this year learning about glaciers and ice fields and I've never seen one. So I think going to Greenland and and having that connection and finally seeing it is really helpful and it's hard to sort of quantify it. You know, I was the same. I'd never seen one. I did A-level, went to university, field trip down in southern Spain. I hadn't seen a glacier until we went walking abroad. So that was quite late on. They're not as I imagined at all. Right, okay. the, ones, the ones I saw were were covered in stones and mud and dirt. And yeah, they're quite a dirty landscape, aren't they? They're not pretty, are they? Not no. not necessarily, anyway. No, there's a lot of um, sort of sediment being grinded and glacial flour. Yeah, it's not a bright blue as you would imagine, I guess, in, in pictures and stuff. No, it's not. And uh, the other thing that's this was while I was teaching, so this wasn't me. This was with my students, but there was a. An A-level question, I'd been teaching for three years, I think, something like that, not very long. And there was an A-level question I thought we'd prepared perfectly for. It was a, a glacial landscape. I think it was an arete, perhaps a corrie, 
but it was in the days of, this is pre-internet, of course. So this is in the days of textbooks. And they came out the exam and I said, did you do that question? It's absolutely fantastic. It was just spot on. And they looked at me blank. Not all of them, but some of them. And they said, oh, is that what it was? I didn't recognise it because I had only seen the textbook pictures. So they didn't recognise the feature because it was slightly different. Yeah, yeah. So you must see various different different versions of glaciers now. They're not all the same at all, are they? No, uh, depending on the region and where it is and sort of what the climate's like. Yeah, they're very dramatically. And the difference in speeds, difference in the crevasses, difference in the stuff on top. Yeah, there's things like uh, rock glaciers as well, um, which are just a mush of ice and rock. So they're very dramatically. What we need you to do, I think, for the GA is take some photos while you're there. And the best thing to do is have a bank of different things so that when students get the chance to see this sort of stuff, they're not faced with one photograph or two photographs. They get the opportunity to see lots of different ones. You could do that with the internet now, but you've got to be a, an inquiring student to be able to go and dig that out, I think. It's useful for teachers to provide students with lots of different examples, I think. Yeah, it's definitely happening. I know the University of Colorado are doing something with creating 3D pictures of in places um, like Greenland and around glaciers, because I think it's really important to sort of see more images about these places when you're studying them. Talk me back through your climbing. Where have you been? What have you done? Uh, yeah, so no, nothing too adventurous, I guess. Um, obviously, there's a big motivation to move to Sheffield, uh, being next to all the gritstone crags. Um, so done some trad there, quite a lot of trad. Been to Snowdonia quite a few times to do some of the classic ridges there and some of the multi-pitches there. Done some sport climbing in Chamonix, didn't manage to get up um, into any of the peaks, unfortunately, but not, nothing too adventurous just yet. You're going to have to explain the difference here because I understand the terms trad and, uh, and sport. But what's a trad climber? So trad climbing is climbing a, a cliff or, or you know, a piece of rock and you place gear in to protect yourself. So you can sort of shove these little metal like nuts, I guess, uh, into cracks and then you can clip your rope to that and you hope that they hold if you do fall. Yeah. And then sport is uh, the gear is a bit more permanent, I guess. So they're drilled in bolts into the rock. I was watching some people on Malham. I think Malham Cove, part of it, is bolted. Have you been? No, I haven't been to Malham. Um, really hard stuff there. Yeah, some of the <laughs> hardest climbs, in the, the hardest climb in the UK is at Malham Cove, I believe. So Yeah, it did, it did look pretty tricky, but I think it's bolted. And when I was climbing, it was frowned upon to bolt routes. This yeah, is- I think that's uh, quite a, a British thing, I guess. Um, and I can kind of see it, especially liking Trad myself. But I think the outlook has changed slightly since then. You put yourself on the line a little bit more with traditional climbing because, like you say, if your bolt comes out, you fall. Yeah. If placement's not secure enough, you fall. Yeah, yeah. So it requires some mental tenacity, I guess, uh, which is part of partly why I enjoy it, I guess. Challenge you physically and mentally and then test where your fear is, um, which is in a healthy way. You were talking about the new points climbing. Well, I'm going to call it new, but it isn't. It's probably 25 years old. It's a while since I've climbed. You've been climbing 5C, is that right? Uh, yeah, so I recently did a E2 5C, which stands for Extreme 2. Uh, so, so kind of a hardest grade, I guess. Um, and the protection wasn't too good, um, but it was, yeah, out on Burbage, it was a lovely day. And you were leading? Yes, leading. 
well, hats off to you because frightened me to death. I don't think I ever got past, what did I do? VSs in those yeah. days, very severe and very severe is not very severe compared to an extreme E5. So uh, yeah, I don't think I'll come climbing with you. Thanks very much. <laughs> Unless I'm on the other end of the rope and safe. I'm going to ask you, finally then, I'm going to ask you about your PhD again. We've said a little bit about this as we talked, but I get, as I talk to people involved in studying about climate change, it's not a great rosy picture. What are you hoping to find and how will you get that message out to the public? Yeah, so my PhD is looking at Mount Water on on Greenland, basically. So we're seeing increasingly large quantities of water coming off the, the ice sheet and that's affecting how glaciers work and it's, it's important you mentioned the, the communication side I guess because uh, I think it's really important to especially as I believe I'm sort of on the transition from being more of the general public to maybe being a bit more specialised being able to sort of communicate the new research people are generating what general public can understand I think it's really important so they're aware of the changes happening too. It is very distant, like we said earlier, uh, you mentioned it, but somewhere across the other side of an ocean, well, it's not going to affect me. I don't know how you how you do that when there's a there's quite a resistance from a certain section of the community, I suppose, that uh, that wants to continue with fossil fuels, that wants to continue with development, that talks about climate change being a natural process and actually we're not we're not having as, as big an impact as people say and you're scaremongering yeah I guess it's hard to try and persuade those types of people I guess but just from my own experience I think education especially geography at school is really important in that it passes through to the parents I think I remember learning about climate change and geography at school and going back to my mum telling her about it and she didn't know too much about it uh, you know, now she only puts enough water in the kettle for one cup of tea and and stuff like that. So I think there are many ways to deal with it. And hopefully the, this younger generation, my generation, will have an impact, but it's probably too late. How gloomy is it? You can be honest now with this last little bit. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't look too good, I guess. I actually did some, looked at some stats. Uh, so when the GA was first founded in 1893, the CO2 global concentration rate was at 300 parts per million. That's now increased to 418. So the CO2 concentration has risen more since the GEO was founded, since the date the GEO was founded to the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago. So the scales are, are you know, massive of, of what's happening to the Earth. And I don't know if there's any coming back from that, but I'm only a massive student, I guess. <laughs> we just will make the best of it, I suppose. And I'm going to sound, I'm not going to, I don't want to sound blase, but we'll, we'll have to mitigate now because we've gone beyond the stage of preventing some of the, the dramatic changes that are going to happen, I think. Is that, would that be right? Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, it's definitely, it's unavoidable. There's going to be some impacts in the future and it's just how we deal with it. What do you think the key ones are going to be? What will we see? I think we're already beginning to see things anyway, but what will we see first that will shake people? The extreme temperatures still don't seem to be raising an awful lot of alarm. And yet in Spain at the moment, the temperatures are incredibly high. In North America, there are droughts, but people still don't seem to, some people anyway, still don't seem to be making that link. Yeah, I guess, again, like, communication is, is hard of that um there's a lot of people on twitter i know that tell people you know look these are record high temperatures every single year we're breaking 
highest temperatures, there's a record number of natural disasters happening. But I think sometimes data can lie, I guess. And if it was someone who wants to put a certain message across, uh, it's easy to sort of uh, manipulate the data to convince people otherwise. So I think there's a big issue with that uh, that needs sort of resolving. How much ice is going to go in the next few years in Greenland? How is that, those ice sheets, how is that going to impact our sea level? Quite a lot, I guess. It's hard to sort of think about it in numbers, I guess. I remember reading an article that in, in 2019, in one day, something like 10 billion tonnes of water um, came off the Greenland ice sheet, um, which is just a huge amount. And you know, that's not only going to affect the sea level, but also sort of our, our nutrient cycles in the ocean. It's going to affect fish stocks. So it's going to have huge impacts. And unfortunately, it is within our lifetime. There's a projection that I use sometimes. It's called the spillhouse projection. And it's, it's a projection of the oceans rather than a projection of the continents. So you can see how everything is joined. And I've shown it to a number of students who've been quite surprised that everything's joined together in terms of the water. Yeah, yeah. You sort of don't get that with a, a Mercator or a Phillips projection. And you don't see the, the Pacific either because that gets cut off. But it was it's quite interesting to see their different perspective when they realise that what's going on over there will fill up this whole basin. Yeah. That's why you can shift the immense amount you've just talked about. It'll be spread across the whole of the world. So on one level, it sounds massive. So then people say, well, that's a massive amount. It's made no difference so far. So I don't need to worry. Well, actually, you probably do. Yeah, I think that one of the biggest contributors as well is the thermal expansion of water. So we're also seeing increasing ocean temps and, and that has see the volume of water expands. Um, and that's also going to have a massive impact. So it's quite a really complicated issue, which is hard to measure, but places are already seeing you know, local sea level rise anyway and being affected by it. I do remember, I think it was the Maldives where the government held a meeting underwater just yeah. to demonstrate where they might be in a few years' time. Oh, it's, um, it's not entirely good news, is it, I'm afraid. But I will look forward to your results of your PhD. And hopefully <laughs> we're beginning to make some more positive actions that will perhaps mitigate against some of the worst excesses of the things that you're going to be finding out. OK, to, just to wind up now, then, I just wonder if there's a, a summary that you can provide us with that would help A-level students pick out the key things in terms of melting, disappearing glaciers, sea level rise, climate change? I guess it's, that it's all going to happen in their lifetimes, a lot of things. One of my main results from my master's project right now is that we're modelling how the genome ice is going to change. Uh, we see that pretty much by 2040, the whole ice field is, is being ablated. So there's very few points left on the ice field that actually have a positive accumulation all year round. Um, which is a lot sooner than I thought. And it, admittedly, it's only a simulation, I guess. And it's quite sad to have come to that conclusion myself. Yeah, so I guess in the next sort of 100 years, a lot's going to happen. I think climate is going to play a bigger role in everyone's lives and, and maybe everyone's jobs as well. So it's looking quite gloomy, but maybe there is a chance that my generation could change things. Oh, well, that's a positive to stop on. Thank you very much for chatting to me today. That's been really interesting. I've learned a lot, as usual, which is why these are so good. And I hope your time at the GA, the rest of it, goes well. And particularly your PhD. Do come back and let us know how it's gone when you finished it all. Or keep us up to date while you're going through it. Yeah, definitely love to. Thanks for the opportunity, John.
No, it's been really good. Thanks, Ryan.